Well, we've been going through verse by verse, 1 Corinthians. That's been our practice here. Verse by verse, chapter by chapter, no stone left unturned in this letter so far, I hope not. Uh, If you find yourself reading this letter in some context, maybe your personal Bible reading, and you think, huh, I wonder, I wonder what we believe about that or whatever. You can look up all the sermons. They're all online, and we've touched every word, and we're going to keep doing that even through some of, again, the most difficult verses in the letter, uh, and we're going to seek to make our way through chapter 14 before here in a couple weeks beginning this amazing 58-verse chapter 15. We'll be in that one for a while, (laughs) 58 verses. But before that, let's look to finish chapter 14 and the word that it has for the local church. You notice again at the start of verse 26 where our passage begins today, Paul is asking the question, the rhetorical question, what is the outcome then, brethren? That's like saying, now what? Okay. He said all these things, he's spoken these truths to these people, and, and he's given them instruction, and he says, now what? And he's going to give them some more specific instructions, particularly as it involves the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy. But we do well to notice that in our passage today, as he's giving instructions for the local church, we'll do well to notice the things that he doesn't mention. He doesn't mention the order of the service. He doesn't mention anything about time, what time you start, what time you finish, how long the service lasts. He doesn't mention anything about the types of music, doesn't mention that. These things that we so often wonder about, if you were to go online and to search for local church leadership podcasts or or church strategies or whatever, there's a lot of time spent on those things and figuring out what's best in those areas. Paul doesn't go there. Paul doesn't go there. He goes to more weightier matters as it is, and he asks the question, what now? Well, let's consider what he has to say. Notice that the next phrase there, what's the outcome then, brethren? The next phrase is, when you assemble. When you assemble. This means that it was a practice for them to assemble. (laughs) This means that it was something they did. They got together. They met. They fellowshiped. Just like we are here this morning, it was something they did regularly. Now, some people wonder where in the Bible it's required that you go to church. Have you ever met somebody like that? You're so, well, where does it say go to, yeah, you have to go to church? Well, here's a, a hot tip for you. Often when someone's asking that question, that means that person isn't even a Christian, okay? If a, if a Christian, so to speak, is saying, well, where does it say that I have to go to church? It's likely that that person hasn't even grasped the gospel, Because the gospel isn't just an individual affair. Now, of course, it is. It begins that way. But God doesn't just save us and then leave us out on our own, does He? He puts us into a family. He puts us into a family. And I'm very thankful that in my life, right alongside with my love for the Lord that He has cultivated within me, there's also been a love for the church the whole time. I haven't had a period in my life where I was apart from the church. It was through the testimony of the church. It was through the comforting family of the church that I even came to know the Lord in the first place in my life. But there are some of you who have gone through stretches in your Christian life, gone gone through seasons where you weren't in fellowship, where you weren't in fellowship, and perhaps had even a sour attitude toward the church. This isn't the way it is supposed to be. 
It's not the way it's supposed to be. We need our family, don't we? We need our Christian family. Our Christian family is a great support. It's a gift of God. And it's a regular practice to assemble. Paul doesn't say, if you assemble. If you happen to find yourself at church, may it never be. When you assemble, when you assemble. It's an important phrase. And then notice, too, before we get to all these big things he says that people bring, there's still stuff we have to notice. When you assemble, each one, it says, each one. And then he goes on to list some things that they bring to be incorporated into the fellowship. But each one brought something. Now, we, we do well to recognize another thing, that this isn't comprehensive. This isn't saying that every time they met, every person did something in the service. That's not necessarily what it's saying. Now, there could be an element of that, but that's not necessarily what it's saying. It's not saying that each one has the same thing that that person brings every single time they assemble. It's not saying that either. But what it is saying is that when they got together, what made up that ministry? What made up that time of assembling? What was it that was, that was going on as they assembled? Well, individual members of the church were contributing. That's what we need to notice. Individual members of the church were contributing. That's what was going on. And it's very fascinating to me that in this whole letter of 1 Corinthians, there is no mention of church leadership. It seems as though this is a pre-elders type church. As he goes on to give instructions for the church, there aren't mentions of uh, elders or deacons. It was just the congregation of the people and the Holy Spirit without a leadership structure, it seems. They had freedom to express as God had gifted them. They had freedom to show up and to express these gifts in the assembly. And Paul goes on here to list some of these gifts, and the first one may be a little bit surprising to us. He hasn't mentioned it yet, and we see it here today. There in verse 26, each one has a psalm. A psalm. Well, what is, what is a psalm? Well, simply put, it's just a song. Okay, a psalm is a song. It could also mean, though, that Paul had in mind the actual psalms. Perhaps someone brought one of the psalms from the 150 that are in God's Word, something to sing for the congregation. Perhaps it had to do with individual, personally written psalms. Perhaps people were writing songs for the church. It doesn't say if this has to do with individual, for lack of a better word, performance of the song, or if it was leading in corporate singing. We don't know. I would venture to guess that it incorporated all of those things. It was a music ministry in the church, a music ministry. And music ministry is a gift to the church, isn't it? And we've been blessed by that this morning from Mark and Jessica. On a Sunday when uh, our other music ministry couldn't do their thing, Andy's out sick today, uh, we have, of course, others who sing every Sunday and we're able to sing even more. And that's a ministry to us. That's a ministry to our hearts. And some in the Corinthian church would come bringing a psalm, a song. Some, it says, would have a teaching, would have a teaching. This is something that's learned from Scripture, something that they learned as they were studying the Word of God, as they were reading the Word of God, as they were being instructed in the Word of God. And now they're bringing it into the assembly to relay to other people for their edification, for their betterment, for their understanding. And remember, again, it's not saying just elders. It's saying each one has 
a psalm. Each one has a teaching. They would come together and they would share what they had learned from the Word of God. Then we get three more. And these are interesting because these last three that are listed are seemingly in a different category than the first two. Revelation, tongue, interpretation. Each one of these are in the miraculous sign gift category. Each one of these have to do with inspired type giftings. And you can understand that pretty plainly from the first one listed there, revelation. Someone coming with a revelation. Well, what is a revelation? It's a new word from the Lord for a congregation. At this time, there were people who God had specifically gifted with the ability, with the knowledge, to offer a new word from God. Now, that would be a very exciting Sunday, wouldn't it? Everyone comes together and someone legitimately has a revelation, and we're going to read a lot more about that in the following verses. Each one has a tongue, it says. Each one has a tongue. This is a language exercised miraculously. You should know that by now. We've been talking about tongues for quite a while in this chapter. And Paul is saying that that's a gifting that some might bring to the church. These tongues were used to offer praise, to impart knowledge to the congregation. But it was spoken in a language unknown to the speaker. God was miraculously working through that person to share in a language that that person did not previously know. And then the fifth one in the list, of course, this isn't comprehensive, but the fifth one Paul lists is interpretation. This has to do with that language being spoken. It's the translation of that tongue so that the whole congregation could understand and be edified. It appears through many different evidences in chapter 14 that oftentimes someone would have a tongue, have something to say in in another language, and then have no idea what was said. So interpretation was key. And Paul, if you notice, he's being very consistent in coupling tongues with interpretation. He doesn't want tongues to go without interpretation in the assembly. But the last statement of verse 26, I want you to memorize. Can you do that? The last sentence in verse 26, it says, let all things be done for edification. This is the governing principle of the whole chapter. How can you sum up 1 Corinthians 14 with one sentence, let all things be done for edification? It's the theme, it's the governing principle, it's this idea that whatever you bring to church, that's how we talk about this, right? When we gather, whatever you bring here, bring it for the good of others. Whatever you bring, bring it for the good of others. That's the governing principle. But also don't miss this, that Christians gathering in church or Christians gathering as the church, in the local expression of the church, it is built on the idea of every member participation. You see that in this verse too? Members are participating in the fellowship. They're participating in the assembly. They're participating in the service. Whatever you want to call it, there's a participation that's happening from every member. They see themselves as essential to the function of the body. Well, God has gifted His body for this very purpose, that each member do something, that each member contribute, that each member be involved. He gifted His body so that we each, as individual members of the one body, may participate in that body. And every member participation, this idea, 
It should be on the heart of every Christian. It should be the desire of everybody who claims the name of Christ to participate in the fellowship. And it should be on the heart, particularly, of every leader in the church. Every leader should desire every member participation. You know what's happened through the years, and you've heard me talk about this before. What happens through the years is, say in Corinth, eventually elders were appointed, and you had those charged with shepherding as Christ's under-shepherds, shepherding the local church. And then perhaps as time went on, as Paul talks about in the New Testament, a laborer being worthy of his wages to support those who labor in preaching and teaching, you had people become quote-unquote, full-time or vocational in ministry. And do you know what can happen in a local church when that happens, especially as you add more and more staff members to a local church? Well, then ministry gets left to the professionals. And I hate that. I really, really hate that idea. Because God has never said to His church, and He's never designed His church in such a way, that ministry would be done by the professionals and by the professionals alone. There's no such thing as a professional minister. I'm a mess, okay? There's no such thing as a professional. There's a body, and that body cannot function without the cooperation, without the togetherness, without each member coming together and ministering as they have been gifted individually. It's very key that we recognize this in this simple statement, let all things be done for edification. That means as each one participates in the assembly as God designed, let your motivation be the building up of others. So let me just ask you as a point of application here, what do you bring to church? We think of all kinds of things we need to remember. Don't forget your Bible. It's important. Don't forget your Bible. Oh, and I was going to bring this for that person. I was going to bring that for that person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. Remember all that stuff, okay? Remember to cover yourself, all that stuff. Remember what you need to bring, but think about what you're bringing to build one another up as you've been gifted. We need to remember this. Are there no avenues for you to participate? I want to know. Tell me. (laughs) Because perhaps you might be thinking, that sounds nice, but what can I do? tell me. Let me know. I want to help because this is the way God has designed His church. Paul now speaks specifically, as we consider the rest of the passage, 27 all the way down to 35, he speaks specifically to the ordering of tongues and prophecy in the assembly. And I want you to listen for principles for us as we consider this passage. Okay? 1 Corinthians eleven 27. Let's look at this together, and I'll go ahead and read all the way down to verse... 33. It says, if anyone speaks in a tongue, it should be by two, or at the most three, and each in turn, and one must interpret. But if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church, and let him speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others pass judgment. But if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. For you can all prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all may be exhorted. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets, for God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. 
So how should our worship be ordered as we gather together? Well, there are two main focuses here, one on tongues and one on prophecy. But I've been saying tongues and prophecy so much that I think I need to use different terms. So if you look at your notes, you can see that I've not used those terms here, but instead of tongues, miraculous language speaking, because that's the definition of tongues, miraculous language speaking. I don't want you to, you know, kind of glaze over a term because we've just been saying it so much. And let's talk about that first. How were miraculous language speaking gifts to be exercised in the local assembly? Well, first we see in verse 27 that there were to be limited participants, and the structure was also pretty rigid here, wasn't it? Limited participants and a rigid structure. If, there are, if you can remember these three numbers, you can remember how it was supposed to be put together. At least two people, no more than three people, and just one at a time. The numbers two and three and one. At least two people, no more than three people, and just one at a time. You see that in verse 27? That it says, if anyone is to speak in a tongue, it should be by two or at the most three. And I think Paul here is saying there needs to be at least two. Remember the Corinthian problem with miraculous language speaking? They were showing off with it, is what it appears to be, the evidence in the letter. They were showing off their spirituality. So what would happen if Paul said just one tongue speaker per service? Well, they would all be fighting to be the one so they could show off how spiritual they are and no one else gets to do it. So Paul is saying at least two, I think, hedging against pride, it seems. But no more than three. No more than three. Notice that he adds this phrase, at the most three, and then each in turn, so just one person at a time. This was how they were to speak in tongues, how they were to exercise miraculous language speaking in the assembly. And then he goes on to say that if there is no interpreter, so this is the end of verse 27 and end of verse 28, if there's no interpreter, silence is better. Silence is better than having no interpretation. At the end of verse 27, it says that one must interpret. That might mean that there was just one person that was designated as the interpreter that Sunday, because if you had the gift of interpretation, God would, of course, use you to interpret whatever the people were speaking. And so perhaps there was just one interpreter, yet if there there wasn't even one, verse 28 says, it's best to keep silent. Now, this word silent is going to show up in our passage today multiple times, and so I want, I want you to see this word and understand that this word doesn't just mean cease to speak. We know that that's what silent means. It means to stop making noise, and if you're speaking, to become silent means to stop speaking. But there's also an element here of yielding to another. When Paul is talking about becoming silent in this passage, he means to yield to another as well. And, of course, this is in the context of the gathered assembly. Paul is saying, verse 28 again, if there is no interpreter, he must keep silent in the church. Let other people speak. If you have a tongue but you have no interpretation, be quiet so that others can speak for the purpose of edification. And Paul goes on to say, let him speak to himself and to God. Paul has been so clear in this In this text, interpretation is required because edification is the purpose. No one is edified by an uninterpreted uninterpreted tongue when we talk about the context of the local church. Robert Gramacki put it this way, if no interpreter was present, 
Then the tongue speaker was to speak silently to himself and to God. If he could not add to the edification of the meeting, he was not to take away from it with an uninterpreted utterance. I thought that was a, a good way of thinking about it. If you can't add to the meeting, don't take away from it either. And just be silent, letting others do, do the speaking. Now, I do want to make a note here, too. We're kind of wrapping up our conversation on miraculous language speaking. There's only one last reference to it in the, in the letter that we'll get to next week. But I want to mention, when it comes to the gift of tongues, it appears as though there was a personal edification benefit. And just to refresh your memory, look back up at verse 13 with me. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 13, Paul encourages them, Therefore, let the one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Paul talks about praying in a tongue and doing something that leaves his mind unfruitful, but he's not discarding the practice altogether. Look down at verse 18 with me. In verse 18, Paul says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, note the phrase, in the church... I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul is saying that there was a personal benefit to uninterpreted tongues, and we don't understand that today, and that's okay. But in the church, tongues were always to be paired with interpretation because edification of the whole was always the goal. Now, the other thing he talks about in this passage is where things get pretty gnarly starting down in verse 29 and uh, through verse 35, Paul has prophecy in view. How are people to exercise the gift of prophecy in the local church? Well, Paul gives some specific instructions. If you start at verse 29 with me, you see again that he's limiting the number of people involved, but in a, in a different sense. There were to be no more than three prophets speaking per session. Because you notice in verse 29 that Paul says these two or three prophets are to speak, and then there's to be a break for others to pass judgment. Let two or three prophets speak, and then they are to take a break so that others can examine what they have said. Now, if you look back up at verse 27, uh, where he's talking about tongues, you notice again that he uses the phrase, at most, okay? He says two or at the most three. It seems like in any given assembling of the local church, there were to be no more than three people speaking in tongues. Now, he doesn't use that phrase back down in verse 29. He doesn't say, let two or at the most three prophets speak. It seems like he's talking about before breaking for judgment. There are to just be two or at the most three. Now, that, I could be wrong about that, but it, that's the deduction I made. And I make this deduction because if you look at verse 31, as well as other places in the chapter, Paul doesn't limit the number of, of prophets in a local church to just three. He says, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be exhorted. He has a bigger view of just two or three prophets speaking in the local church. It seems like there could be many on any given gathering. But he does, of course, limit it to just one at a time. Just like with people speaking miraculously in other languages, they can't all get up and speak Dutch and uh, Afrikaans and Spanish all at the same time. That would be chaos. Well, the same thing with prophecy. 
You couldn't have two or three prophets or however many stand up at the same time and all try to issue their prophecies in competition with one another, speaking over one another, and all of that mess. Paul says, just one at a time. Now, you may notice that in verse 29, Paul doesn't say, let two or three people with the gift of prophecy speak. He doesn't say, let two or three people who are able to prophesy at any given moment speak. He calls them prophets. Let two or three prophets speak. And this is a heavy term, isn't it? Because I would imagine that some of us have made the distinction in our mind between people who could be called prophet and then people who may have happened to issue some sort of a prophecy once or twice in their lives as we read about them in Scripture. Well, Paul says, let two or three prophets speak. What does he mean by the term prophet? Let me give you a a slight refresh on what a prophet is, those who could issue miraculous disclosures of divine revelation. A prophet, of course, in Israel was a position or an office that certain people held. Even this morning in Sunday school, we talked about Elijah. Elijah was a prophet in Israel. We have whole books named after prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, on and on it goes. We have examples in the Old Testament in Israel of men that God raised up to be prophets. What's interesting about the Old Testament prophets, one of the many things that's interesting, is that they were to be examined. As Paul talks about judgment and examination here in the church, in the Old Testament, prophets were very much to be examined. You may remember Deuteronomy 13 or Deuteronomy 18. You can jot those references down. You can look at those later. But in those two passages specifically, Deuteronomy 13 and 18, God tells Israel to listen to what the prophet says. If the prophet tells you something is going to happen and then it doesn't happen, not a prophet. If the prophet tells you that something's going to happen and then it does happen, and then he says, now let's go follow another God, not a real prophet. So that's good examination that needs to take place to hear what the prophet says and to judge the prophets, to judge what is being said in Israel. That was Israel's commission when it came to listening to prophets. Now, as the church is being built now in light of the finished work of Christ, we see, too, that there are prophets in the church. There are prophets in the church. Ephesians 2.20 is a verse that you should know pretty well. We've come back to this one a couple of times in our 1 Corinthians study. But Ephesians 2.20 says that the church has been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone. The church is built on New Testament apostles and prophets. And then as we continue reading through the New Testament, we see that God had gifted many different types of people with the gift of prophecy, and they, either male or female, were called prophets. I want to take you to Acts 21. Acts chapter 21, and I want to look at verses 8 through 11. So you can see just back-to-back a couple of instances of prophets in the New Testament church. Acts chapter 21, starting at verse 8. This is Paul on one of his journeys. Acts 21, starting at verse 8, it says, "'On the next day we left and came to Caesarea, and entering the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, we stayed with him.'" Verse 9, "'Now this man had four virgin daughters who were 
prophetesses. There's our, our term. Verse 10, as we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming down to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. So, on this journey here, Paul is in one place, and then he has a run-in with five different prophets, just in a short span, these four daughters, and then, of course, Agabus. So, the way that God was issuing His prophets in the church was, of course, similar to the way that He did so in Israel, but also different. It's also different in some ways that we can note. In 1 Corinthians 14, again, our passage for today, you'll see in this chapter that Paul encourages Christians to seek the gift. Paul encourages the church at Corinth to seek the gift of prophecy, the gift of miraculous disclosure of divine revelation. Look at verse 1, chapter 14, verse 1. Paul says, "'Pursue love, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy.'" Okay, very interesting. Desire earnestly, especially prophesying. Drop down to verse 24. This is what we looked at last week. Paul says in verse 24, "'If all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters,' He is convicted by all, and he is called to account by all. Paul here is envisioning a scenario where all people are prophesying. Verse 39, the very end of the chapter, the last verse of the chapter. We'll look at this next week in more detail, but look how he concludes this. Therefore, my brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid to speak in tongues, but all things must be done properly and in an orderly manner. He calls them all to desire to prophesy. So, when Paul says in our verse for today, verse 29, let two or three prophets speak, who are the people that he's calling the prophets? Well, that's hard to answer. It's hard to know if Paul was envisioning the office of prophet upon which the church was built in a more formal role, if that office of prophet was really anybody who exercised the gift of, of prophecy, including Philip's four virgin daughters. We can't really divide these things as neatly and as cleanly as we would like. But what we do know is that just like the prophets of the Old Testament, these prophets were to be examined. See that again in our verse 29? After these two or three prophets speak, the others are to pass judgment. The others are to pass judgment. This was always an aspect of prophesying. I don't want to glaze over, gloss over that point. Always with prophesying among God's people came examination and came judgment, and this is no different. We have in this section of the letter, Paul saying that God has gifted the church, the uh, certain individuals in the church, the gift of discernment. And perhaps it was those with that gift who, in this particular instance at that time, were to employ their gift to discern what was being said. And the standard of judgment, of course, wasn't what anybody felt, what anybody thought was right, what anybody thought a prophet should say, but the standard of judgment was always the Word of God. Again, going to next week's passage, it all is tied together. Verse 37, look at what Paul says here. If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize that the things which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. 
If anyone thinks he's a prophet, he must know that he has to submit to the apostle's words. The apostle was writing the Lord's commandment, and no prophet could reverse what was written through the apostles, what was inspired Scripture. And this is a principle that we can very readily and easily apply to anybody who comes along and says they have new revelation. Anybody who comes along and says that they have a new word from the Lord, who have, you know, whatever new book or or whatever they're trying to, to get out there, we say, well, let's examine that with the written word of God, the Holy Scripture. Let's examine that prophecy. Let's examine even that prophet with the word of God. We are not to just take in whatever anybody gives us. We are to say, okay, you claim to be a prophet. Well, let's examine and let's judge. That's what Christians do. Christians compare what is said in the name of God to the Word of God. But you have to wonder here in Corinth, in this scenario, they're gathered together like we are this morning, probably in someone's house, probably a a group a third of the size, and you've got a couple of people who want to prophesy. And they speak, and then they sit, and then we look at each other and say, well, what just happened, (laughs) right? That seems like maybe a little bit of an awkward moment, a little tense moment there as as you begin this, this round of judging and examining. And you have to wonder, what was on the line here? What was on the line? Were these believers examining what was said so that they could find out if this person was a false prophet? And if that person was a false prophet, what were the ramifications of that? Do you remember what happened in the Old Testament? Well, surely they weren't going to do that in Corinth, were they? I don't think so. (laughs) So what was on the line here? What were they examining specifically, and what were the ramifications of that? Again, we don't have a lot to go on. You're seeing the words just as I am. Here's our passage. But maybe we can think about this a little more. There are some people out there who teach that God would would give someone the gift of prophecy, but then as they exercise that gift, there would be God's truth, His, His prophecy given to them, mixed with their own thoughts and ideas, and there would, there would be truth and error mixed together. And they were well-intentioned, but the whole truth just wasn't coming out as clear as God would have intended it to come out. And so the church then would have to examine and kind of separate what was man's opinion from God's prophecy. That's not how God has ever issued prophecy. That's just not the way it's ever been done. If that were the case, we should all sit around and determine what parts of Isaiah are inspired and which are not. You willing to do that? <laughs> Me neither. Me neither. God has never allowed His truth be, to be mixed with some sort of falsehood. I don't think that's what's going on. Well, then what was going on? Were there some false prophets who had sneaked into Corinth? Perhaps the church would get together in someone's house and, hey, Gary's visiting for the first time. I hope no one in here is named Gary. I, don't, I think we're Gary-less today. Um, hey, there's Gary. And he says he has the gift of prophecy. Well, let him speak. And then they all look at each other and say, Gary's a false prophet. Let's drag him out of here. Maybe that was going on. That's within the realm of possibility. You can certainly imagine Corinth, the city that it was, the influences that that city had. You can imagine that there would be some sort of pagan prophet who would come in and try to issue some sort of pagan word in the name of the one true God. They were not to let that happen. 
You also see that phrase, again, going back to verse 37, if anyone thinks he is a prophet. If you were to ask just the typical, just put all Christian names in a hat, draw one name out, and ask that person, what's your spiritual gift? What level of confidence is that person going to have in answering? I, in my experience, the majority of people are very confused on this. The majority of Christians are very confused about what their particular gifting is. And there's a, a bit of danger in trying to pigeonhole yourself to one or two gifts and say, okay, God's equipped me just to do these one or two things, and I've got to figure out what they are so then I can do them. That's not our approach to these things. That shouldn't be our approach to these things. God's enabled you to do all sorts of stuff things you don't want to do, <laughs> things that you don't even have a burden for, but you just step up to the plate and do it anyway. That's how we should approach the Christian life. And along the way, we're going to discover some things that are just God's gifting by His grace. Well, it appears, according to verse 37, that there were some people who were thinking they were prophets, and maybe that was the case among the Christians in Corinth. Look, I think I, I might have a word from the Lord, and then they speak, and Everyone else sitting, sitting down is saying, hey, brother, uh, that goes against some of the very words of our Lord. <laughs> That's not a prophecy. And by God's grace, he says, oh, wow, yeah, I'll submit to that. And then he's done. Maybe that's what was going on. There are some options for you. You figure it out. I, I can't give you a solid, airtight answer on this, but those are some possibilities. It's also possible as we consider judging the prophecies that these judgments had to do with discerning the application for the prophecies. Perhaps there was a prophet who would be in Corinth and he would say, in 55 days there's going to be a mark on this church. Our local leaders are going to be out for us in 55 days. And there's the prophecy, now they need to discern what they do in light of that prophecy. Perhaps that was an aspect of it too but we just can't know for sure. And so I agree with the, the commenter, David Lowry. I really loved this short little statement. He says, whatever the Corinthian services were, they were not dull. <laughs> I think we can all agree with that. Whatever was going on, it was pretty exciting in Corinth, okay? Well, we also see in the midst of all this, God's heart for order in the church. Verse 30 is sandwiched in between some verses here. Verse 30 kind of stands on its own. It says, if a revelation is made to another who is seated, the first one must keep silent. Now, that's an interesting phrase. But what Paul is saying here is that the speaker, here's our word silent again, the one speaking was to cease from speaking and to yield to another if more revelation came spontaneously in the service. If God is, has given one a revelation in the service there in Corinth, the one who is speaking is to stop speaking and yield and say, yeah, brother, what's your word? And then he would stand up and share. You see, they may not have had an order of service, but there was order to be had in the service. Okay, that was the way that they were to go about their worship, to have order to be done in a godly manner. And this was possible because the prophets had control over what they were doing. You see again, verse 31, they were to prophesy one by one. And then verse 32, Paul says, the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, as in all the churches of the saints. 
the prophets didn't lose control when they prophesied. They didn't lose control of their behavior or their personhood. You can just imagine some of these Corinthians replying to Paul and saying, yeah, that sounds good, you know, two or three and then judge one by one, but when the Holy Spirit comes on me, I'm just out of control. And perhaps you've heard some people talk that way before. When the Holy Spirit comes upon me, they just lose all control. Not according to the Word of God. The Word of God says that the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. As with writing Scripture, those inspired did not lose control. They didn't lose their personhood. They had a responsibility to control themselves. And Paul says that this is all about, in verse 33, this is all about fostering peace in the church. And that's done by avoiding confusion by avoiding competition, by avoiding chaos in the local church. They were to foster peace. Now, what's very interesting about verse 33 is that peace and confusion are set at odds with one another. You see that? In verse 33, God is not a God of confusion, but maybe you would think it would say logic. God is not a God of confusion, but He's a God of logic. But it says peace. God is not a God of confusion, but He's a God of peace. Confusion and peace are antagonistic. They're contrary. You can't truly be peacefully confused. Okay? Peace comes through God's order, honoring God the way He should be honored. So what should we seek as we gather together? We should seek peace through God-honoring worship seeking to worship the way that we've been instructed to worship. I liked this word from Gordon Fee in his commentary. He says, the character of one's deity is reflected in the character of one's worship. You could just stop with that first sentence and just marinate on that for a long time. The character of your God is reflected in the way that you worship said God. Wow, what an amazing statement. The Corinthians must therefore cease worship that reflects the pagan deities more than the God whom they have come to know through the Lord Jesus Christ. God is neither characterized by disorder nor the cause of it in the assembly. God does not have, as a part of His nature, confusion or chaos. He is a God of order, and we reflect that in the way that we gather. Paul says that God is not a God of confusion, but of peace, again, verse 33, adding the phrase, as in all the churches of the saints. Now, it's possible and perhaps even likely that this phrase, as in all the churches of the saints, goes to the start of verse 34, that it doesn't end verse 33, but it actually begins verse 34. And if that were the case, it would read this way, as in all the churches of the saints, verse 34, The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, just as the law also says. If they desire to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. Well, I have to be so careful, don't I? Uh, I have to be so careful with what is said. I really, really like what Thomas Schreiner said in his commentary. This is another one of those kind of joke sentences. Questions and controversies abound here, and the discussion must be brief. All right. (laughs) 
I agree. <laughs> let's, let's keep it brief. Now, there is some question as to whether these verses were original to Paul, if you've ever uh, been around anybody who's taught or if you've done some study yourself on textual criticism. You know that there are certain portions that have made their way into the Bible that we look back in their textual families, where they came from, and it appears as though certain things weren't original, original to the author. And that's reflected in some of our different translations, and there are very few of them, and they're very fascinating conversations to have, and I enjoy having them. And some people point to these two verses, 34 and 35, and say, these probably weren't original to Paul. Boy, that would be just an easy way out, wouldn't it? Uh, But I don't think that's the case. There's great evidence to suggest this is what Paul had originally said. So let me say that from the beginning. But Paul here is telling them that women had a specific role in this prophesying process. And when you see that word, women, in 34, and they're referred to as uh, they in verse 35, I want you to see that as wives, okay? Not just women generally, but wives specifically. Why is that? Well, you see at verse 35, their solution then to not speaking in the assembly is to talk to their own husbands. These are women who have husbands. They're married to husbands. So, we're talking specifically about women who are married in the church, it seems. And it says that they are to keep silent, verse 34. Let's remember what that word silent means throughout this passage. Of course, it means to cease from speaking, but it also means to yield to another. Not just to cease from speaking, but to yield to someone else who will speak. So, when it says, verse 34 again, women are to keep silent, we naturally ask the question, how silent? (laughs) How silent is silent, according to Paul here? Well, he doesn't explain the extent, of course. Again, you're looking at the same text I'm looking at. He doesn't explain the extent, but the letter does offer clues. There's one major clue from earlier. Go back to chapter 11 with me, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, just a page or two back. Remember the passage talking about head covering and hair lengths? It says in verse 5, this is speaking in the context of the gathering, every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her also, or let her cover her head. Well, look at verse 5 again with me. What is the context of this covering? It's while praying and prophesying. Here we see women are allowed in the assembly to pray and to prophesy. That's an important takeaway from that chapter, isn't it? That that is something that they're doing when gathered together. And so when we get to chapter 14, verse verse 34, Paul is not saying, forget what I said just a couple chapters ago. Now I'm saying they have to be totally silent. That's not what he's saying. So what is he saying? Well, to me, the issue has to do with authority, particularly the authority that husbands were to have over their wives, the way God has designed it from the beginning. And I want us to see 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 to 14, a familiar passage, I'm sure. You don't have to turn there. We'll read it from the screen. 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 14. Instructions for the church, again. A woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. We'll stay right there on verse 12. 
You see, again, Paul is bringing up the idea of silence or quietness. How is that silence or quietness defined? She's not allowed to teach or exercise authority over a man. That's how it's defined in that verse. Okay, verse 13. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So there Paul is appealing back to the creation account, back to Genesis as the foundation for this principle. In 1 Corinthians 14, he says, as the law also says, and there's nothing in the law that specifically says that a woman is to submit to her husband like the New Testament spells out for us. But we can understand that Paul was probably appealing back to the created design and what happened in the fall. Just as Genesis explains to us how God created male and female and what happened as they fell, that it was not Adam who was deceived but Eve, that's the basis for saying woman is not to have authority over man in the church, even in a pre-elder church like the church in Corinth seemed to be, a church that did not have set leaders that we see in the letter. Perhaps it was a particular issue that when someone would issue a prophecy and then the round of judgment began, that you would have chaos ensuing in the form of wives and husbands bickering about the prophecy. Wives trying to overtake their husband's authority in the church and to teach their own husbands in the gathered assembly. And Paul is saying that's not the way it should be. I think this is particularly in reference to the judging of prophecies, and I think it's particularly in reference to husbands and wives. I think that's what's going on here. But again, you figure it out and let me know what you come up with. Some of these women could have been disputing, discerning the prophecies. Even though they could prophesy, once the fellowship moved on to the examining and the judging of the prophecy, the women were to be silent. They were to cease speaking and to yield to another, namely their husbands, who would then exercise discernment about the prophecy. So the principle that we can take away from this, of course, is that women are to demonstrate submissiveness as designed by God. Again, look at verse 34, Paul does appeal back to the law. This is probably one of those cases where he's referencing the Old Testament as a whole. This is a part of God's design as we read in Genesis, that women are to demonstrate submissiveness as designed by God to promote peace, order, and edification, that God may be honored among us. That's a good goal, isn't it? To promote peace and order and edification that God may be honored in the assembly. Let's pray. Lord, again, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You for the difficult passages of Your Word, that You've given us instruction for how to live, and sometimes it is so difficult to build a bridge to 2,000 years ago and to make application for today, but we trust Your Spirit to do such a work in our hearts as we rely on Your sovereign grace to bring about what it is You would have us to do. God, make us servants, make us others-minded, that we would prioritize others in the fellowship, that no matter what we bring to church, that we bring edification to build one another up and that we make it our goal to participate in the body according to the order that you've called us to have that reflects your nature and keeps, and keeps us in step with your worldwide church. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.